You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. They, uh, they say a week is a long time in football. And what a week it's been. Who would have thought that this time last week that a football club appointing a new CEO would have involved the Archbishop, the Catholic Archbishop, the Anglican Archbishop, the Premier of the State and an Anglican Church? I definitely didn't have that on my bingo card this week. But for those who are unaware, let me recap the week's events. On Monday, the Essendon Football Club appointed a new CEO, Andrew Thorburn. Uh, to be their CEO, and immediate, almost immediately his position was under pressure uh, because of his links. He was the chairman of the board of City on a Hill, an Anglican church. And particularly, two sermons were uh, pointed out one from nine years ago and another one sometime between now and then uh, talking about abortion and same sex marriage and what a Christian response might be to those issues. And that created quite a clash. You might have heard the Premier of our state come out and call the views expressed as absolutely appalling and unacceptable. And within 24 hours, Andrew Thorburn was placed under immense pressure enough to resign from his position. So it's been quite the week. But sitting on a hill aren't a particularly controversial church. They are a church. They're an Anglican church, they're part of the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne, they hold to fairly Anglican beliefs, we might express them differently and I dare say Sam and I might say different words when we talk about it, but they hold fairly inbounds Christian beliefs. They might be controversial opinions, particularly in our culture at the moment, but they're not particularly controversial beliefs theologically, to believe that, uh, that we are pro-life, we want to be for life, that uh, that. Marriages between one man and one woman. So the question on my heart is, if that's the witness of the church, that I'm, I would suggest that the church has believed that for 2,000 years, something along those lines, that I might express the same things, well, is a church like ours next? Is a church like ours next in the firing line? What, what does that mean for us as Christians who might hold to not controversial, but conservative opinions around abortion and same-sex marriage. What should we live? How should we live in this culture where there seems a growing gap between Christians and the culture around us, and that's creating conflict? What should our attitude be? Should we bury our head in the sand and just hope that all the controversy and the hullabaloo passes us by? Should we retreat to the hills? Should we make a modern monastic movement and just completely remove ourselves from the culture around us? Should we go on the offensive and put all our time and energy into the culture culture war, hoping that we can get some power and influence and reshape the society around us in our image? And what on earth does all of that have to do with David and Saul? Well, as Sam said, we believe at this church that the Bible is God's Word, and that's useful for correction, for teaching, reproof, and rebuke. And so that as we open up God's Word, it speaks to us. And I was struck this week preparing that as we open up God's Word, 1 Samuel 24, that it was speaking to us. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning that God would illuminate our hearts and our minds, and then we're going to jump in and see what God's Word might say to us this morning. So let me pray. 
God, we pray. Words are just words. We need your spirit. So God, we pray that as we preach, that as we open up your word, as we sing this morning, that your spirit might come and fill our hearts, that we might be built up in you, encouraged and invited to see you for the glory and beauty of who you are. God, we pray that you might speak to us this morning in your word. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Well, it might have been a big week in football, Let me grab my pointer. It might have been a big week in football, but it's also been a big couple of weeks in the life of David. Last week we heard that David has accomplished a great victory. He's defeated Goliath, the great enemy, the great champion of the Philistines. And since that moment, things have only got better for David. He's been sent out by King Saul. He's accomplished all kinds of great victories and been appointed as a military commander. He marries a princess, one of Saul's own daughters. And it seems like everybody loves David. Except that it's for one man. An increasingly moody, an increasingly angry, an increasingly jealous King Saul doesn't like David very much at all. In fact, we read in 18.12 that the Lord had left Saul and was David, so Saul was afraid of David. And one chapter later, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants that they should kill David. An increasingly moody and increasingly angry and increasingly jealous Saul has decided that David is his enemy and that he should be done away with. And so what we read in the next couple of chapters is this back and forth between Saul plotting the downfall of David and David escaping. Saul planning the assassination of David and David escaping until we come to 1 Samuel 24. So let's dive in. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took out 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. But David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Saul has been pursuing David through the desert. He's got some intel about where he might be. And yet he walks into the cave unguarded. His troops are outside and and David's men say to David, this is your chance. This is the moment. God has delivered him into your hands. Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it seems good to you. Well, I can think of a few things that it might seem good to do in that moment. Except God actually never says that. God never says to David, I will give your enemy into your hand. The closest that we have is in chapter 23, where God says to David, I will give the Philistines into your hand. Saul's not a Philistine. It's close, but it's not really, is it? There is a pressure that comes when we are placed under pressure. Sometimes we feel the need to twist God's words to suit our own agenda. 
We see this in some really obvious examples, particularly in America. I'm thinking of uh, when uh, President Donald Trump was uh, appointed, that many Christians would, would quote the Psalms and say, let the Trump sound. It's like, not really what that passage is about. But it's also in less obvious ways that we would twist God's Word to suit our own beliefs, our own thoughts, our own actions. We would justify ourselves by twisting God's words. Except that's not the mark of a mature Christian, is it? That's the mark of a child. How many of us have heard a child say before, he started it. You should have seen what she said first. That actions are justified by what others are doing to us. That's not the mark of a mature Christian. The way that we live matters, even under pressure. We are called to live a Christ-like life, a life under God's Word, obedient to Him. And I understand that whilst many of us, most of us probably, won't ever be called a bigot by the Premier, we all will face opposition because of our faith. We all will be placed under pressure because of what we believe. It might be the kind of pressure that comes when you go to after dinner or after work drinks. It might be the kind of pressure that comes when you're in a dating relationship and your partner wants to go further than you're comfortable with. It might be your, when you're, you're partnered, you're married to a non-Christian, you have different ideas about how you might parent your kids. It might be in Pride Week when your work wants you to place something on your clothes and you feel uncomfortable. All of us will be placed into difficult circumstances because of our faith and will be placed under pressure to compromise and to twist. But that's not our call. The call, regardless of what pressure that we face, is not to compromise on God's Word, not to twist God's Word, and neither to fall into anger or defensiveness or bitterness. You know, I love what Peter says about Jesus. When describing Jesus in the way that he responds, it says this, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's the heart of Jesus, but that's also the heart of David in this passage. His men around him are telling him, this is the moment, you can get your enemy. And David says, nothing. He doesn't clap back, he doesn't argue, he doesn't threaten. He entrusts himself to God. I can imagine that he would have faced great pressure to twist what God had said to him only a chapter previous to get what undoubtedly would have relieved a lot of pressure on him. But instead of twisting God's word, he trusted what God's words actually said. Let it be same as us. But the passage goes on. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you'll do to him as it seems good to you. And then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. Afterwards, David was stricken to the heart because he cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. There we go. 
He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to, te- to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave and went on his way. It's a bit of a strange part of the story, isn't it? David's men say, you should kill him. David doesn't kill Saul, instead cuts off a corner of his robe, and yet David's immediate response is to be stricken to his heart. Saul, who's just told multiple people to assassinate David, to kill him, to do away with him, and instead of harming him, David just cuts off a corner of his cloak. What is going on? Well, in the story of 1 Samuel, robes matter. In fact, you could tell the relationship, the whole relationship between David and Saul just based on robes. You see, in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul is removed, uh, well, God has removed the authority of king from him, even though he retains the position. Saul calls after the prophet Samuel, and this is what happens. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this very day and has given it to you to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What a twist right at the end. He's given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Saul's own son, Jonathan, a couple of chapters later, gives his robes to David to indicate that the line of Saul will not continue, but the kingdom will go to David. And so when David cuts off a part of Saul's robe, he is fulfilling the words of Samuel nine chapters earlier. Except the reason that David is stricken to the heart is because he knows something. That the transition from king to king, that the transference of the kingdom cannot come by force. God has appointed Saul as king. That's why David keeps calling him the Lord's anointed. He can't just grab it. Just as the, the Lord has given the kingdom to Saul, David is to wait until the Lord takes the kingdom from Saul. That David is to trust both the ways of God and the timing of God as he operates under his hand. Well, Christian, how do we act in this world that we trust that God is in control and so we submit to his ways and his timing? All of our life is to be lived under the providence of God's hand and trust. And that should give us both a fearlessness and a fearfulness. David is fearless. Regardless of the fact of whether he ends Saul's life or not, you can't say the man didn't have courage. He crawls to where Saul is relieving himself. He cuts off a corner of the robe, something that required boldness and courage, something that required skill. I can only imagine that he was able to do so because he trusted in God. Just as he confronted David because, because he uh, confronted Goliath because of his trust in God, David was able to be bold because he trusted in God. Well, Christian, we know the heart of God towards us. We know that we are accepted in Christ. That should give us a fearlessness in this world because what can be taken from us that doesn't ultimately come from God's hand? If we live our whole lives accepted in Christ... 
if we live our whole lives close to him, knowing that he is in control of all things, that even the worst thing that happens to us can only push us closer to the heart of God. I'm not saying there won't be grief. I'm not saying there won't be tears. And I won't saying there be, I'm not saying there won't be hardship. But ultimately, all of us, all of it will push us closer to God. Even the worst thing that could happen. I, I took my nan's funeral this week. There's a lot of grieving that day. But you know what comforts us? I know that my nan is with Jesus forever. Even the worst thing that can happen to a Christian brings us closer to the heart of God. But should we just be fearless all the time? No, because we balance our fearlessness with a fearfulness of sorts. That all of our life will be lived in accountability to God. That there will come a time where we will come before the Lord and give an account of our lives. Jesus says every idle word, every careless word will be given an account before the Lord. And so we don't just do whatever we want. We live our whole lives knowing that we will give an account to God. Does that describe you? Do you live your life knowing that you will give an account before God? Do you live your forgiven, accepted in Christ, redeemed life, knowing that you will give an account for the way that you lived? That should sober us up pretty quickly. It invites a humility, doesn't it? Whose acceptance am I working for? Whose approval am I living for? Knowing that all of my life, my forgiven, accepted, redeemed life is lived before the Lord God who knows the end from the beginning, and I'll give an account of my life. But the story continues. David rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to do you harm? This very day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand. By the fact that I cut off the corner and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the ancient proverb says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May he see to it and plead my cause and vindicate me against you. You, David does something pretty fearless, doesn't he? It's one thing to confront Saul in the cave when he's a little bit further away from his troops. Maybe they don't hear him in the cave, but Saul has gone down the mountain closer to his men, the 3,000 men that outnumber David's by five to one. David calls out, Saul, my king, my father. And David doesn't even threaten him. 
He simply says to Saul that you're ill-advised, that you've been told the wrong thing. I have no harm in my heart towards you. Look, I could have killed you. I had the opportunity. I had the motive. But I chose mercy and grace. I chose not to harm you, to show you that there's no harm in my heart, no treason in my heart. But what about you, Saul? David quotes one of the old proverbs, one of the old sayings that out of the wicked come forth wickedness. And he says, well, king, what has come forth out of you? You've pursued me for day after day, month after month. What has come out of you? I love Saul's response. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Today you explained how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Next slide. I'm going to put this down. Let's go to the next slide. For who has ever found an enemy and sent the enemy safely away? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. One more. Now I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. What we see in Saul's life is repentance. David, my son, as tears weep down his face, tears come down his face, what we're seeing from Saul in this moment is seemingly true repentance. That just as David was struck to the heart, so Saul's heart has been softened by the mercy and grace offered to him by David. And that's really the key question here, isn't it? What provokes Saul's repentance? What, rep- what provokes this change of heart for Saul? Because it's not political power. It's not a media blitz. It's not a well-worked speech. It's not money, power, or influence. It's not fame. It's not pressure. It's not even the law of God. The thing that softens Saul's heart is that David has offered him mercy and grace. Saul has appointed himself as enemy of David. And instead of treating him like an enemy, he's treated him like his father. He's forgiven him. He's loved him. Well, Christian, that is the same place that we find ourselves in, isn't it? That God is our father, but we have fallen short of his glory that we have found ourselves enemy of God and instead of pouring out his justice upon us he has poured it on his son so that we might experience mercy and grace Christian how are we to live in this world we keep mercy and grace on repeat we keep the gospel on repeat we keep the mercy and grace that has been offered to us in Christ Jesus on repeat everywhere we go that's the whole game We don't get distracted. There's a lot of things that the church can be distracted by, about politics, about power and fame and money. But the main game of the church has always been the mercy and grace found in Jesus Christ. How are we to live in this world? We keep that on repeat and we don't get distracted by other things. If we want to see our nation's hearts suffer towards God, we keep mercy and repeat. We keep mercy and grace on repeat. We do the same kinds of things that Christians have always tried to do. 
We live our lives to Jesus. We point to Jesus. We keep talking about Jesus and the mercy and grace found in him. We trust God's words for what they actually say. We live our lives under the hand of God, trusting his ways and his timing, and we keep mercy and grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ always on repeat. Repeat in our churches, repeat in our lives, repeat everywhere we go. As this church might say, our goal how we live in this world, we glorify God. We grow to maturity in Christ's likeness and we go in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak out the good news. How are we to live? Friends, let's go do that. Let's go do that. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we pray that as we opened up your word that you would speak to us. My words are just words. They're nothing without your spirit. And so I pray, God, that you would open up our eyes and ears and hearts. Make us more like your son, Jesus. When we're under pressure to conform your words to the words around us or the desires of our heart, let us hold fast to your word, Lord. When we feel the pressure to move from your ways and your timing, let us trust you, knowing that you know the end from the beginning that our whole life is lived under the providence of your hand, God. May we trust in you. May that be a deep and abundant trust. And Lord, everywhere we go, may our words be seasoned by mercy and grace. May that be the thing we are known for. Yeah, those people, they believe the gospel. They're on about Jesus. They're on about mercy and grace. I can't get them to shut up about that. God, would you shape our hearts to always keep mercy and grace on our lips. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.